Have you ever stopped to think that virtually everything we use in our daily lives is based on technology? Even further, do you understand the software behind this technology? Welcome to The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. In today's program, you'll hear how software is created and implemented, why it's written the way it is, and learn from its success stories, proven best practices, and significant failures. Now, here is your host, Martin Lacey. Good morning and welcome to The Art of Software. I am Martin Lacey, your host uh, from Lacey Software Technology Corporation. And today we're speaking with Pierce Hollett from Sierra Systems. Uh, Paul Twig unfortunately had a conflict and uh, was able to provide some of his notes um, to to, uh, uh, Pierce. So we'll just be speaking with Pierce today. Um, So uh, let me just give you a brief intro for Pierce. Um, Pierce Hollis is a technology principal with Sierra Systems. He's worked in the software industry for 20 years, specializing in the health IT solutions, XML technologies, and enterprise mobility. Uh, As an architect like myself, Pierce has led development of several enterprise uh, uh, exercises, specifically for him in the healthcare registries and information exchanges and is involved in the standard uh, standards and profile development communities. So that means he's keenly interested in, um, in, in uh, the way things are built and making sure that they're built well, um, as a good architect should. Uh, welcome to the show, Pierce. Hey, thanks. Can I uh, say a few things about myself before we get going? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Please do. That's a great introduction. Love to hear more about yourself. Please explain. Yeah, so specifically, I'm a solution architect for the BC Provincial Lab System here in British Columbia. It was built by Quest Diagnostics and Sierra Systems for the Ministry of Health. It's been around for about 10 years, and we reached our full onboarding about four years back when we brought in feeds from all the community labs. So that was a huge uh, milestone and a huge undertaking um, and something to be proud of. Right now, we're in more of a maintenance mode. Um, we've moved out of active development. So we're, we have a smaller team, but we still um, use daily meetings to stay in touch and weekly status checks. And we're doing AMS development. We work closely with the AMS operations people and a variety of other stakeholders. So one thing that that I find really interesting about working on this program, particularly in in healthcare, is the number of stakeholder organizations that are involved and the way basically success and failure comes down to um, your ability to work together. So I think that's that's a very important point. And, And one of the things I'm sure we'll talk about today and also, although I'm a Java architect, I work with Java Spring. From a development point of view, I also okay. love UX design and um, building with JavaScript and other client-side technologies. So it's kind of ironic that I spend my work life talking about an enterprise healthcare system that's entirely message-based, doesn't even have any UI. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's, that's interesting. I, I mean, I've, I've done a limited amount of um, interfacing with the healthcare systems uh, one organization I dealt with was a online pharmacy, so of course all of their scripts had to be cleared by by doctors, and we had interfaces to the um, underlying healthcare system. So I, I guess that's part of what you're trying to revolutionize is is that that interface to the to to the healthcare underlying healthcare systems and how. Um, uh, pharmacies and doctors' offices and other practitioners interact. Is that correct? Right. Absolutely. Um, I think that, that one of the things that we deal with a lot in healthcare is uh, putting all our eggs in one basket, centralizing things, and then um, building data warehouses, moving data around in a, in a contained and secure fashion so that we can get a better understanding of what the entire enterprise and industry is doing. And it's very important work. Well, absolutely, and it, the 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 risks um, or the the downside if it's not done right are are spectacular in that you're dealing with a very sensitive uh, information. You're dealing with personal data, um, so it it has uh, a, a a big impact if there's any kind of issues anywhere down the long the line of of any any layer of the software. Exactly. You know, I joke that my job as a software architect is primarily to be simultaneously completely paranoid and stay totally calm. 
But that yeah. about sums it up, you know. Uh, whether you're working on healthcare, or you're working on a justice project, you're working in government, or if you're working in in the private sector on a consumer application, if you're working at a nuclear power plant and the software there, the stakes are always going to be high because the reality is you're working with customers' personal information. That always introduces risk. You know, to put it bluntly, a, a lack of understanding of the risks which are involved that's the main reason why significant failures in software happen. Totally The risks can be categorized into three main categories, I think. First, we talked about data. There are risks around data, the type of data, where it's stored, how it's collected, how it's stored, how it's transferred. All those things introduce risk. You know, our business is information technology, and that means data. That's, that's a reality. Yeah, and and that that that's that's critical um, in terms of managing that that data, making sure it's secure, and as it passes through all the various layer, layers and functionality that your application presents, um, you know, there's the sensitivity of of the information that you're you're transmitting, and then we've got other applications which are sensitive based on the timeliness and and the effect it has. For for example, in a real time. Uh, plant situation. So you, when you're dealing with information that's being uh, managed and running the plant floor and making decisions uh, as to quality assessment and where things should be changed, though, though that type of information is is just as critical because it, it impacts the, the direction and the management and the running of the company. It is not so much sensitive in terms of the, uh, it's not exposing uh, sensitive data other than raw processing data, so there, there's you know there's different wrinkles pe- depending on your software, but the the need is still there. It it has to be absolutely secure and protected. Right, and I mean the irony is that even if you're dealing, you, you may be dealing with interactions between different systems, which take two seconds, two minutes, doesn't really matter, maybe m- milliseconds, but what you're also dealing with is requirements gathering, and that can take months or even years. So that's really important. The requirements and applications are often perceived to be absolutely essential, but are they? Uh, really, who gets to make the determination about what the requirements are? Maybe it's, it's the... That's a really good point because requirements, I mean, if, you've, if you let them stew long enough, they change. They change a lot <laughs> Over a decade, and you know, a typical healthcare project, for instance, takes easily a decade to to develop, get into maintenance, and then continue on into sustainment. Um, and that typically, as you're doing that development, you get further and f- further away from the end users, your clients, your customers who are actually using the system, because you do requirements gathering. You think that that captures your business perfectly. And then you step away. Your end user, well, all they want to do is automate their world. But in isolation, that's fraught with errors. I mean, look at the the Phoenix payroll system, which is hitting a lot of headlines right now, which IBM developed for the Canadian government. Was it the tools or the processes processes that caused that system to, to go where it did? You know, at $150 million, it's an expensive failure. But the software that's too complex just becomes impossible to manage and, and maintain. And that's where failure comes from, is, is just complexity and size. It's hard to manage. Yeah, and that, that complexity is, is really the, the, the bugbear uh, in software. It's, it's the approach of breaking it down into smaller pieces so that you don't have those complex issues. Something that's smaller, more tangible, easier to wrap your head around and, of course, wrap uh, uh, test routines around and automate that process um, these are all bits and pieces, you know, at the minutia, the very fine level that that we as our software um, visionaries, uh, software architects, need to make sure is in place, and um, you know, we need to make sure that that's understood by the business how important it is. Yeah, right. I mean, you're dealing with requirements, use cases, test. But more importantly, you're also dealing with people, and we need to not become complacent or take a piece of software for granted. For example, you export data. You put it on your executive's laptop, his phone. You walk away, and it gets lost in an airport. That kind of failure happens all the time, and it shouldn't. But it happens because of complacency, and it happens because of lack of understanding of the risks which are involved. 
Is that a software failure or a process failure? Well, it's both. Software Ooh, right. just, it's smart enough to understand data. It shouldn't be stored outside of certain boundaries, but those boundaries are also very permeable, and that introduces huge risk. And we spend an awful amount of time mitigating that risk. That's, a, that's an excellent point. And I think we want to jump right back into that um, managing risk, managing the scope and defining those, those issues. Um, as soon as we come back from our break, we're going to have a, a short break now. Thanks, Piers. Uh, we'll be back shortly with The Art of Software and Piers Holland as we discuss and review how to better run and implement projects so that failures don't occur. Awesome. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Private equity firms have over $1 trillion to invest. They are the biggest funding source for growing companies. Why do they reject 98% of deals? How do you get the right deal for your company? Join Kevin Fechtmeyer and his partners on the Deal Team 6 to uncover the next winning deal and avoid the financial landmines. Deal Junkie, Cracking the Private Equity Code, is broadcast live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. How is your business running? It should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Serju Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. How is your company's marketing plan? Could it use a little help? For most businesses, the answer is yes. Tune in each week to Marketing That Won't Break the Bank. Host Janet Kunst and her guests will show you how and where to bring your marketing to the next level. Each show will feature action strategies that you can implement right away and see results. We'll make this easy for you. Start by tuning in every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacey at laceytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. Welcome back to the show. I'm speaking with Piers Hollett from Sierra Systems today, and we're going over the do's and don'ts in software and how you can avoid some of the more catastrophic failures that occur or have occurred in the industry. We've talked briefly about a couple of um, uh, spectacular issues. Uh, what I want to get into now, and we can come back and talk you know, as a need be of, of things that are in the news, like the Equifax bug and things like that. But what I want to move forward on now is to talk about the project, the software project itself, and how we how that comes to be, how you manage scope, um, how you keep things contained so that you, although software can be very, and is very, very complex, you need to boil it down when you, on a project by project basis, to modules and to routines and to nuggets of what actually needs to be done. So, Pierce, what's your what's your thoughts on managing scope and scope creep, as it's called? Well, you know, if we're talking about scope creep and we're talking about complexity, this morning I saw this on the news. It comes ac across my feed. Amazon's Alexa is randomly laughing at people. The company <laughs> is trying to fix it. I think, well, yeah. this is awesome, right? Here's the yeah. thing. As systems and algorithms become more complex, and, and as the, even the, the architecture around how different com components work together 
like for instance, you know, big stock trading systems or airline reservation systems. These are high traffic, high mission critical systems. They become absolutely impossible to predict because you have so many inputs and you have so much complexity internally. On top of that, you know, we start talking about, well, how can you add a little bit of machine learning or something like that to your business? Those are great discussions to have. But again, it separates you further and further from that idea that you can write down all of the requirements which define your business and then build a single application that's going to, like that monolithic approach will steer you in, in some challenging directions because you may not be dealing with an artificial intelligence, but you're certainly dealing with something that you can't understand and you can't predict, and that's challenging. So you have to keep things as simple as you can. Sometimes stupid ships a product when clever wouldn't, and I've always fallen back on that because, you know, you're, you're in a meeting, you say, well, that's a stupid way of making that work, but it's going to work. But it works. Okay, <laughs> let's do that. Keep yeah. it simple. Now, I think if you're talking about scope creep, scope creep comes up a lot. On the one hand, you do need to systematically cycle through gathering business requirements, elaborating them into use cases or user stories, depending on what methodology you're using, then building test cases and using these as the basis for any development that you do. That's just a given. But in a large program that spans multiple years, you also, like we said before, you can lose context. What you originally set out to do is different from what you actually did. You discover you have a problem, and then you discover a solution, and then you start to implement the solution, and you realize, oh, we actually built that solution five years ago. We've just forgotten that we had it. It's been moved out of scope. Let's just bring it back into scope. Wow, that works. That happens, right? It's functionality yeah. that was never used, so no one is sure how it works. So your initial gut feeling is, oh, we just need to build it new. Sometimes what you've already got is good enough. So that that's one of the things that I find happens a lot in in systems that have been around for longer. Is is the scope you're tacking on scope from previous projects and it's already already been accomplished? Yeah, exactly. Or or you're trying to you, you you've invested in building something which has a bit more flexibility than you needed at the time, and it pays off when you need it later, and that's fantastic. Building in too much flexibility, there's a cost to that, right? So there's a balance, and maybe scope creep itself is an excuse, you know, by key decision makers who didn't pay enough attention or didn't want to pay attention at the beginning of the the project. Or maybe it's an excuse by developers or architects who didn't really understand the full problem they were trying to solve. They just wanted to start solving it. Or maybe it's an excuse by project managers who believe that we can change a deliverable without any impact to a project. And I, I see that sometimes, and sometimes I see myself being that. And, <laughs> yes, you know, it takes, it takes a lot of uh, integrity and courage to say, yeah, those are all important things. I see that there are some defects here that somebody thinks needs to be fixed, but what's the underlying problem? What's the root cause? What are we actually trying to do here? And let's face it, if we follow the simple project methodologies like Waterfall or Agile that are designed to prevent scope creep, none of these things should be an issue. But we don't follow them. We start off with the best of intentions, but again, to return to that people issue we're only human and we're too yeah. rigid to adopt and understand change to sum it up in two words change happens so yep. you have to ask yourself at the beginning of every project how am i going to handle change and you know uh, when we keep on talking about this and simplicity something just keeps on ringing in my ear over and over again and it's a basic principle that my, my father as an engineer uh, he hit it home on me uh, from when I was 10 and you know because I have a tendency to uh, uh, you know someone asks me the time I'll build them a watch and uh, that's just the detailed nature of uh, of me um, and of course his his comment back on that is always and he comes from an engineering perspective he's a electrical engineer um, his term was the KISS principle yeah, keep it simple. Just keep, I mean, the kiss has two S's on it, but keep it simple, silly, or keep it simple, stupid. But, you know, there's a, it's just keep it simple. That's the, that's the crux of it, right? Yeah, and, you know, this may sound like an odd analogy, but I find myself falling back on this. Okay, so I do product development, but I, I, I try and explain where things go wrong with scope creep 
uh, using hair product as an analogy. So like I get a new jar of the stuff I put in my hair, pomade or, you know, texturizing putty or whatever. <laughs> and I get this new jar and it's full and I use a ton of it and I style my hair. I've got the wave, I've got the, everything going on and I, I'm super happy with that because I've got a new thing to go with. It's shiny, it's fun and I can get creative with it. By the time I get to the bottom of that jar, you know, I can pick out a, a millimeter of that stuff with a fingernail and get the effect that I want. So <laughs> why wasn't I doing that at the start of the jar? Why am I not doing that at the start of a project? Because at the start of the project, you have unlimited time, you have unlimited budget, you, you don't. But it feels that way. Yeah. And you want to do all the things. It's exciting. And I think that's one of the places where Waterfall takes a lot of things, business requirements, gathering, etc., which are really, really important, front loads them, but those things are also kind of boring. And so people start to get creative and, and add scope in and add scope in because they can, because it's easier to imagine a thing than it is to build a thing. And that's where, uh, yeah. you know, an agile software approach comes in and says, no, what you want to do is focus on that minimum viable product figure out what that is, start building that, and then start adjusting how you are managing your development based on whether that minimum viable product turns out to be enough, too hard, too much. You can make those decisions, but you're, you're deferring those decisions until you actually have the understanding to make good decisions, but also that initial excitement of having all the things and all the time in the world has started to fade a bit and you've had a bit of a reality check. And that, that's one of the reasons that I like the ideas that come out of that, uh, the, the, the methodology around Agile. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I, I, as uh, we started dabbling in Agile uh, probably 15 years ago, um, just in 2000, uh, when um, I was working for a, a financial company, and we 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 were—I don't even think they had the term agile at that point. It was—we called it prototyping. And you know, ever since I started following that kind of methodology, uh, where you build functional bits that actually work, and it's—you know—it's it's a little prototype, and it doesn't do a lot, but what it does, it does perfect. Right. And you can augment that and add add wrinkles onto it as you go, and it allows the project to to grow. And you know you're you're adding more capabilities onto it. So you know in in that respect, I've come to love agile um, because it, it 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 forces you to stay current and not allow the scope to creep because that wild visioning is you know you you can talk about it in a meeting and immediately and immediately goes onto the backlog. You know, yeah, it's not doable today. No, it's not. It's a great idea. Yes, it is. Okay, backlog it goes. Let's focus on what we can actually do today, this week, and you know we'll come come over to those great ideas um, in the week that that great idea can be done. Right, and you know I've worked on projects which are very traditional, very waterfall, and I've worked on projects that are very um, high agility. And, yes. and to be honest. Both of those things, they're methodologies, but they're also mindsets. And I think yeah. that sharing that mindset around and giving developers and testers and managers the experience of what it feels to move a little bit quicker using Agile and, and to do things a little bit differently is a great experience. And to be honest, the most useful Agile software development concept for me is always going to be MVP. This idea that what, what could we ship if we needed to in half the time or a quarter of the time and our customers would still be happy. And what I really fall back on a lot, because I am working on a more traditional waterfall project right now, is Moscow, which is an acronym which stands for must, should, could, and won't. So it's a way of prioritizing and narrowing down business requirements. And I like that. You know, I find that once you determine what you absolutely must accomplish with an iteration, the other things, they're just less important because you've made that decision that if, if, if I'm going to, you know, succeed or fail on one or two really important pieces, these are those pieces. And then you say, well, there are some other things which we should do. There are some things that we could do, but, you know, it'll take time. It'll take time away from the things which are really, really important. And 
it's kind of like a waterfall way of building that that backlog and I, keep, I, keeping that backlog relevant. I think that's an awesome um, an acronym. Uh, I'm going to start using that myself. I think that's the takeaway from this segment for me is that Moscow concept. Uh, what I like that, about it most is I didn't make that up. The people that I'm working with, the stakeholders that I'm working with adopted that. So it's an easy way for me to talk to them and say, yeah, but should capital S, should we do that or must we do that? And it also comes out of a standards background where there's a lot of shalls and wills and must and won'ts. And I, I honestly think that we can talk about abstraction, but using really, really concrete languages, language around things is super important because there's no going back once you say, yes, we must do this. We're going to. It's going to happen. Absolutely. Uh, thanks so much for bringing, this, uh, bringing these points up. They're, they're really great points, Piers. Uh, we're going to have our, our uh, next break. Um, we'll be back in about two minutes' time with Pierce Holland from Sierra Systems as we talk further into what's good, what's bad, what you should be doing to make sure projects succeed. Thanks very much, Pierce. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back shortly. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Today we live in a truly global environment. Business can more easily be conducted now in almost any part of the world. How do you, as a business owner or professional, navigate the ever-changing business landscape? Tune in to Leadership Beyond Borders with host Kimberly J. Lewis. With a worldwide resource of guests, you'll find out what opportunities and challenges surround diverse and virtual organizations. Listen live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacy at lacytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. Welcome back to The Art of Software. I'm speaking today with Piers Hollett from Sierra Systems. Uh, we're going over the uh, various do's and don'ts in software technology, how, um, uh, how to best manage your project, make sure that uh, some of the more catastrophic failures don't occur to your particular implementation. Um, it's not an easy thing to do. And in fact, you know, from a large, from a, large outside view it almost looks impossible uh what you need to do is get closer to the details and zoom in and when you're looking at the the minutiae the fine level details within software and the layering of software um that's where the where you can start to see the benefit of rigor and making sure these these uh, bugs aren't allowed to 
be um, crept in. So we're going to continue on our conversation with Pearson, talk about the build, test, quality assurance cycle, um, how uh, we do uh, this process as software professionals and how it can be improved. So, Pierce, uh, you're, you're, we were talking before the break about traditional waterfall and agile and how to manage scope and you know keeping that project locked in um, in terms of making sure you're focused on the deliverables, what your what the what the important pieces are to be built, the the, the Moscow um, an acronym. Um, maybe if you could repeat that an acronym for us, and we'll we'll start from there. Yeah, sure. So it's a, it's an acronym that I picked up from some of the people that I work with. Uh, Moscow stands for must, should, could, and won't. So, um, to my mind, it's it's uh, that aligns really nicely with a, an agile philosophy that says, trim things down to a minimal minimum viable product, make something you can ship during every iteration, during every sprint, complete the work that you're doing. And then reevaluate if some of the things that you could do or some of the things that you should do are actually things that you must do right now. So it's, it's an easy way of prioritizing things. And it's a great way of working with um, business people and project managers, I found, because it, it's concrete, it's not abstract, but it also allows a really, really productive conversation to happen. And you end up, you get that buy-in too, because it's tangible. You're not in the closet for months building something that nobody sees. You're actually working with the people that want the product, and they're actually actively involved in every stage, which is like a, a, a godsend. Well, exactly. And I, I mean, like I said before the break, I've worked on projects which are traditional, and I've, wor- I've worked on projects which are scrum-based or sprint-based and, and have a higher level of agility. And those methodologies, methodology is a mindset, but it's also an experience. And I love working with people who've experienced working with different methodologies because they have a point of comparison. And yes. I think that's really important to, as a, as a developer or as a manager or as an architect, you need to really embody the methodology that you're working, and then you also need to evangelize it. So at the beginning of a project, pick a methodology and stick to it. Yes. You may bring in elements from other methodologies, but you really have to understand what you are gaining and what you're sacrificing by using a, a particular methodology and when I say you that's a collective you everyone has to buy in everyone needs to stay bought into that you can't develop in a black box and only involve and you need to involve your end users from day one they need to be part of that and that's one of the things that definitely um, and categorically uh, typifies agile software development is your clients your customers have to be involved from day one and they need to stay involved and you need to keep them involved um, and yes, that's a, it's a technology thing, but it's not a technology methodology alone. Sometimes it's cheaper to change your business processes rather than customize your technology. Sometimes the right thing to do is to step back and say, no, we don't need to do this. Let's have that conversation. Or the agile approach says, maybe we will do this, but this is more important right now. If you want us to do these things, it means we're not doing those things. Is that okay? And those conversations are just so important to have because it's getting into that minimum viable. What is a, what is viability? What what are you actually trying to accomplish with a, a piece of software? And that does kind of scale from small software to large software. But it's always good to keep in mind that 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 philosophy, the the agile software development. Ph- mentality comes out of the product world it's harder to scale to an enterprise level because you do need to do years of business requirements gathering whether you're talking about user stories or more formal business requirements when you're dealing with a million dollar application that's all there is to it but like you said earlier you always need to remember the kiss principle if you can keep it simpler you should because complexity will bite you an architecture that allows for endless project upgrades is great but an architecture that works robustly today and requires little maintenance tomorrow is always going to be preferable to that. 
Yeah, and, and I think your 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 point that that is uh, irrespective of methodology. Um, you need to embrace the methodology and work whatever methodology you choose. Uh, squeeze every ounce of capability out of it. So if you're doing traditional waterfall and you're doing all your requirements up front, you make sure that at least you understand the boundary conditions on which that requirement that project needs to be um, delineated so when it starts to move into other spheres other projects or or other applications that you need to be interfacing with you know you you start carving that off as maybe another project or an interface layer even at the enterprise layer level when you're dealing with waterfall you you still have to have that approach of segmenting off what is in scope what you're going to be building, even though your project is huge, and what is definitely out of scope. Right. And I'm definitely a traditionalist. Like, if you want to know for a project that I'm working on, a piece of software, whatever, what the requirements are, the first place I'll tell you to look, if, if you're a developer, if you have a technical background, is go look at the unit tests. Because if you're not basing your unit tests, your test cases, on your use cases, your user stories, taking that all back up to the original requirements, yeah. then you're, you're, you're going in the wrong direction. Because honestly, though the, those are the things which will guarantee quality. If you're using a more traditional approach, maybe you call that test-driven development or TDD, yeah. Uh, and it's driven down by the business requirements and use cases. If you're using a more agile approach, maybe you call it behavior-driven development or BDD, or uh, there's probably more acronyms for that now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it all comes down to the same thing. Uh, whether you're based on business requirements or user stories and epics, you need to have unit tests. Maybe you run them from an IDE, or maybe you have an automated test harness that you built yourself, or maybe you have a commercial product that does all that for you. Um, it has to be part of your release process. And again, maybe your release process is continuous integration to create a, a war file that you drop into a repository somewhere and somebody else picks it up. Maybe it's continuous deployment. It, that, that, the tools that you're using, they do scale. Um, and they will, I mean, there's a lot of movement now into continuous deployment, continuous integration. Yes. That, that, that's great. But what's really, really important, the, the nugget of truth within all of those things is build a really robust set of unit tests, and then you're good. Yeah, and I think you, 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 you touched on a point, a subtle point, but so important in there, and that's that the unit tests, there should be a trace back to a user story, trace back to a requirement, to a point in there that goes all the way back to what you're trying to achieve. So there is a thread that follows through from the original requirement. There's a piece in there that should be represented by a use case, a user story, and a test case. And all that should flow together. Whether you're dealing with a waterfall or dealing with agile, you still need to make sure that the requirements have a test case to validate that you've actually met that mission. Exactly. And, and whether you're dealing with waterfall or agile, if you're dealing with millions of dollars, this is the million dollar section. This is where projects fail. This is where projects fall down. But why? Well, I think it's simple. From the end user side, maybe they see the testing period and they use that as an excuse to not provide any input into the project until they get to that point, until they get into user acceptance testing and they say, oh, well, that's not what we meant. Yeah. Ultimately, that's too late. From a developer side, though, we use the test phase to switch accountability from the project team to the business. We shift things around. If the business doesn't find it during that phase, it's not really a defect because it made it through user acceptance, et cetera, et cetera. Again, right. well, why, did, why is the Phoenix project failing? Think about that. The business processes weren't tested until the app went live. All they did was test the functionality. And that is why projects start to go south. You can tell they're starting to go south when you're just saying, 
oh, the functionality works, but you're not asking, is the business process involved successful? Are we accomplishing what we set out to do? And that's a difficult question to ask because you might not like the answer that you get. So whatever your role is within a, a piece of software development, ask that question early and keep asking it. Absolutely. Totally agree with you, Pierce. That is so critically important. And that point gets missed. And I, I totally agree with you that that is, that's got to be the, the reason why software goes sideways is the, 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 the functional business need isn't, isn't understood. And it's been broken down to little functional bits that you think are the business seed and you miss the point. Yeah, everything worked, but nothing works. Yeah, but nothing works together. With that in mind, we're going to take our last break, Pierce. We'll be back very shortly. This is an exciting conversation. Hopefully, we'll be helping developers miss some uh, failures in the future and and help them pull up their, their uh, belt loops and make sure that the current projects that are on are successful. So with that in mind, we'll be back very quickly with Pierce Holland. Hollett. Uh, from Sierra Systems, and uh, myself, Martin Lacey. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. In this fast-paced, technologically driven world of business, the stress can be crushing. It's exhausting business leaders and burning out good employees. It is not enough to work from the top down. We must now learn to work from the inside out. Listen to Innovative Mindful Solutions with Terry Geller. We will discuss ways to transform roadblocking emotions using mindful-based tools you can incorporate into your business and your life right now. Don't stress. Tune in every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice America business channel moving forward can be difficult to do sometimes there is always something going on many times nobody else knows exactly what you're going through if you are experiencing pain or loss even something unexplained that is missing in your life you'll want to tune into go for it with host joe hausman joe and her guests will show you laughter and love Sometimes you just need something a little positive in your week. Make that spot Thursday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacy at lacytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. Welcome back to The Art of Software. I'm Martin Lacey from Lacey Software Technology Corporation, and we're talking with Piers Hollett from Sierra Systems. Uh, he is a software architect, software specialist, software professional. Years and years of experience in building applications and knowing what, uh, what, what pitfalls to avoid and what things go sideways on a large-scale project as well as small ones. So what we're going to get into at this uh, final segment of the show is get down to the low-level details and talk about uh, the, the actual development itself, the, the methods that we need to follow to ensure quality is, is there and that um, we mitigate some of the potential problems with bugs 
Now, there are, are always will be uh, an opportunity for your software to be used in a way that was unexpected. Um, that's a given, and those will no doubt be issues uh, for your software. But we're going to try and talk about the things that you can do and things that are predictive uh, uh, right at the code level. So jumping back into it again with Pierce, um, what do you do today, Pierce, to help manage uh, the actual development process. The when you're looking at the code itself, what's the key takeaways you'd have for making sure that you're building what you intend to build? Yeah. So one thing, like I said earlier, I'm a Java architect, but I'm also a big fan of a of a kind of fail fast mentality, where typically when you're building. Um, Java applications, the same is true of C-sharp, because you're dealing with something which is very, very object-oriented and very, very modular. Yes. Um, when you run into something that you don't know what to do, you catch an exception, you throw it up, and you hope that somebody catches it. Um, that's one approach, and it's not a bad approach if you're very, very rigorous about how you're doing exception catching. And, and everybody on your team has to follow exactly the same exactly. methodology. Exactly. Everybody else has to buy into that. And typically, <laughs> yeah. you have several differing opinions about the best way to throw and catch exceptions and Absolutely. categorize exceptions. And it, that gets challenging. And from a very, very simplistic view, if you don't catch those things, they will still bubble up because an exception is an exception. It will just happen Faster, and that's the idea of failing fast. Um, don't build a lot of validation and checking into your low-level code, assuming that if you bubble up exceptions and you, you you communicate upwards that something isn't right, somebody in a higher level of code is going to catch that and do the right thing with it. If you just fail fast, uh, you know, null pointer exceptions are hard to find. But they're hard to miss as well. Like when something breaks, you want it to be obvious that it breaks. And, you know, this is yeah. where I draw on my experience working with Java, but also with JavaScript, where JavaScript is very different because it's, a, it's in the client. It's on the front end. And when you're dealing with a web browser, you don't want error messages ever coming in front of the user. So if you're looking at your web browser, the kinds of errors that you see are communication errors, like I was trying to hit that endpoint and it's not there, you get a 404 or something like that. But you're not getting errors directly from JavaScript because JavaScript is constantly swallowing exceptions for you so that you don't know about it. But you don't really need to know about it. And that's kind of the beauty of HTML and JavaScript, that it just keeps on chunking along without falling apart completely like every now and then you get that message where it's like oh well something that you were doing is taking too long and it's timed out and we're not sure maybe this is a script which has gone into an infinite loop or something like that and pretty much at that point you need to shut off your browser and start it again but other than that javascript is really really untalkative when it comes to things that are happening under the hood so with when you're working with client-side development you need to take the opposite approach which is make sure that from day one, you're building really, really solid error handling and logging, and it goes somewhere. So that's where uh, cloud-based systems, like if you're using Azure or something like that, you can have a table somewhere which is just logging things off for you so that you can go back and do forensics, and that's all getting right. sent back from the front end. That kind of sophistication is really, really important because you don't have that same sense of logging that you get with Java. But the, the other side of that is in a Java application, if you go to the logs and there are, you know, terabytes of logs to sift through, that's not very helpful either. So th there's a balance in there. Yeah, and I, th I think that that's, you've, you've touched on it. It depends on where you are in the software stack. So if you're lower level um, doing, say, database layer level or, or business object layer level, um, you need to not... Um, try to handle every possible exception that your particular code or module uh, isn't designed to handle. If it's designed to do something and it, and it ends up in a failed condition because of inputs are invalid, then you throw that exception back out so it percolates up. 
through the various layers and at the right layer it'll get trapped and managed and converted into either a, a log uh, entry or massaged into a user-friendly message that says, hey, sorry, timed out, instead of, you know, couldn't access this table because XYZ was unavailable. Yeah, exactly. And you have to always be aware of the the workflow process that you go through when you're doing release management as well, that, you know, a typical piece of software, you test it in a development environment, then you test it in some sort of test environment, then you test it in a user acceptance environment, you do some smoke testing and hand it off to, to your client, and then you go into production. And if you, in my experience, if you're using more of a fail-fast um, mindset, you're more likely to fail during development, notice it, fix it, exactly. and move on. And much less likely to fail when you're in production. And, and I think that's, that's super important, right? I, I think that's the key takeaway right there is is the fail fast, meaning have it fail in development so you know it's there and that you have the appropriate um, mechanisms in place at the right layer within the software stack to address that particular problem, whether it's just hiding it and logging it so that the system can be tuned if it's a timeout issue related or if it's an actual program bug that it could be logged and diagnosed and uh, you know, if it's a trace or what have you uh, stack trace that uh, a developer or someone with the right skills can go in and analyze that problem and correct it and know what's going on so it's you know part of it is also building in that that heartbeat that pulse of the system and being able to understand what's going on. And taking the time to build hundreds and hundreds of automated unit and regression tests. Because yes. Because they will save your butt. I think that's an excellent, excellent point to wrap up with there, peers. is the, the software, it can only be as good as the test cases that you provide. So if you don't rigorously and explore every avenue in your test cases then those that you don't will potentially be found by your customers. Exactly. Well, this has been an awesome conversation, Pierce. Thanks so much for coming on the show with us. Uh, we've been talking with Pierce Hollett from Sierra Systems, um, going over the do's and don'ts of software, how to best build software. It's been awesome discussion. Next week, we'll be talking about tools and techniques uh, for building each layer of the software, uh, of a given software system, and what are the best ways to approach this selection process. Thanks very much, Piers. We'll be back next week. Stay tuned. Thanks very much, everybody. You're listening to Martin Lacey and the Art of Software. Thank you for listening to The Art of Software. Be sure to join your host, Martin Lacey, again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we talk again, have a great week.